Well, I'm probably a terrible sports fan. My shirt, I said, go sports, do the thing, win the points. Um, that probably describes where I land for all of what's happening today. Um, but I think part of what's fun is, to me, I guess I like, I like watching sports. I don't have a team. I know I'm terrible. Um, part of that was probably growing up in the middle of nowhere, and we didn't have TV. So it's like I couldn't watch it anyway. So, um, but I think part of what makes it fun is like this, the, the rivalries and, and the, the seeing like who's going to win, the tension that's in it all kind of draws out something in us. And, and I think I, I see that even like in movies. If I had to watch a movie, I'm probably going to err toward like, like a superhero kind of movie. I like that tension that happens. You have like a superhero, somebody that's going to like jump in and save the day, but you're like, well, who's the villain going to be and what's going to be, you know, how are they going to be wreaking havoc on this city this time or like what's that tension in between? But what happens if that tension is gone? Like you have this superhero that's over here ready to save the day and there's no villain or, or there, there's, there's no destruction happening, nothing to be saved. And then you have the superhero just standing here like there's something missing. Like we, we have to understand the, the villain and the, the, the bad side of things to like really appreciate what this hero's coming in to do to save the day because we have to understand the bad. And this morning, as we continue our series in our, the series called Messengers, we're looking at the minor prophets with a major message. This is, this is probably, I, I know, probably your favorite book, Zephaniah, right? You had your bookmark there already. Like, I was just reading that this week. Um, probably not the book that you're super familiar with. And honestly, it's, it's probably one of the harshest books because it's going to explain the side of what is the evil that we face? What is the, the bad that is there? And, and it's going to be very, very clear with us this morning about the bad that we face. But I think it's understanding this contrast so that when we understand what we're being saved from, then we have a better understanding. So this morning, we're going to look at the book of Zephaniah. And yes, use your table of contents because it's extremely hard to find uh, back in there in the Minor Prophets. Um, so we've got to understand this pending danger that's there um, to be able to understand what we're being saved from. So let's, let's pray before we dive into this book. God, we thank you for the time that we get to spend in your word. And even from a book that maybe we've never even touched before, God, open our eyes and our ears. God, help us to hear what you're telling us. Help us to see the warnings that you're showing us, that we be able to heed your word, that we be able to live in a way that pleases you and understand how we're being saved. God, we love you, and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So Zephaniah. So Zephaniah is the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah, which probably also means a lot to us. He, he was a very godly king. He was actually somebody that, that lived a godly life. He came down with an illness, and as he was like struggling with this illness, he pleads with God, and God gives him an extra 15 years of life. And so he's living his 15 years of life, and during that time, he has a son named Manasseh. Manasseh becomes king after him, and he's a terrible, terrible, terrible king. He, he leads the nation into complete rebellion, completely going against what God says. And then he has a son named Amon, who just continues this downward spiral of terrible rebellion. So far to the fact 
that the nation becomes like they've just completely tuned out to the warnings that are being put out. Just like don't even hear it. Like do you guys, I don't know, sometimes my kids can be kind of all over the place and there's like always noise, like lots and lots and lots of noise to the fact that it's like noise is normal. When it gets quiet, that's when I'm like, whoa, something's up. But it's, they have tuned out, like it's just normal. They're like hearing these warnings and they're like, eh, whatever, completely blowing it off. So Josiah then is after Amen. He becomes king, and he's actually a really good king. He tries, to, he tries to get the people to turn back to God. He purges the temple of the things that have been brought in that have been unholy, brought into God's holy place. He's been trying his best to turn their hearts back to God, and they're still in this point of not listening, don't care. They've just completely come apathetic. They do not care whatsoever. So they've been warned. They're continuing to have these warnings, and they've completely tuned out all spiritual voices that would be calling them to listen. So this has gone on for so long that God's response is that he will no longer sit and wait. Their their lack of of listening or their refusal to listen is answer enough. And so Zephaniah comes in, and he, he comes to the Israelites in Jerusalem, and it's probably one of the most terrifying, harsh, intense warnings that we can read in the entire Bible. This is where I said, I need a big, sturdy, heavy wooden pulpit up here. Something to really, you know, give you something. I don't know. This is definitely not the passages that I would pick. But yet I go, God's got this message for us. Like this warning is here for a reason. And if we ignore the book and say, I don't, I don't care to listen to it, what are we doing differently from, that they did? We're at the same point. So there's reasons for these warnings. And it's not to make them to be cowering, fearful, of God, but this, this warning is there, and the intent of the warning is for repentance. God's desire is to see them become faithfully obedient back to God's Word again. And we normally have two different responses that, are, that we give to those types of warnings. We do like they do. They, they reject the warning, and then we receive the judgment that's promised afterwards. Or the other side is that we're obedient, and then we see the power and the presence of God when we follow after Him. So God starts right away kind of setting the stage in the chapter 1 of Zephaniah, and he reminds them that this is, this is his world. This is, this is his place. He's created it. He owns it. He has power over all of it, and it's about to get really bad. He tells them that I'm going to utterly sweep away everything on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I'm going to sweep away the man and beast. I'm going to sweep away the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, the rubble with the wicked. I'm going to cut off all mankind from the face of the earth. This is where, right, I'm like, this is serious stuff. That's how we start this book. But the very first thing that we're going to look at is this complete rebellion. These people are in complete rebellion. They've completely turned aside from God, and there's this pending judgment that's coming if there's not a change. So today, today I really want to focus in on chapter 3 of Zephaniah. It's the final chapter of the book. And the structure a little a little different that chapter one really is all about the warnings to Jerusalem to the people of Jerusalem to say this is your warning this is how you've sinned this is how you've you've fallen away from me chapter two kind of widens out a bit and it looks at the nation as like the nations around as a whole and gives warnings to all and then as if chapter one's not enough chapter three zones back in on Jerusalem and gives them more warnings and so chapter three though holds this this important part that we get to see 
this turning point that happens if we'll listen. So chapter 1, uh, there's this parallel that kind of happens. Chapter 1 has five warnings of how the people are falling away. Chapter 3 has another five warnings, making ten warnings about these problems that God's pointing out against God's people. So chapter 1, we're going to go through these fast so we can get to chapter 3, which there's a lot in here. But chapter 1 talks about they've, they've committed idolatry. They've looked to other gods. They've looked to other things for satisfaction. They've completely turned away from God. They don't care. Number two, they've knowingly abandoned prayer. They see zero need for it. I don't need to talk with God. I don't need to be in relationship with Him. They've knowingly abandoned prayer. Their leaders have turned aside to other nations for guidance. They said, I don't need to follow after God. I'll do what other people are doing. I'll follow their success. I don't need God. They've accepted pagan superstitions. They began to, to, to pick up from these other nations different superstitions from, from their own religions, and they've been, been implementing them into their own lives. They're just following this trail further and further. And the fifth thing, which is a dangerous thing, they've knowingly abandoned the belief that there's going to be a literal judgment. So they don't believe that this is a true thing that's actually going to happen. So as they're getting these warnings, they can kind of just brush it off and go, it's not really going to happen. It's like, it's kind of this, this warning, but is it really going to be there? But they're in for a rude awakening to find out that it's, it's a true warning. So then we look to chapter 3 then to see kind of these warnings 6 through 10 that happen there. But you have to listen to the rebellion and how drastic and terrible this judgment's going to be. So Zephaniah 3, starting verse 1, it says, Woe to her that is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. Jerusalem has become so rebellious, dirty, and they live in complete direct opposition to what God has called them to do. It goes on to say that she listens to no one. She accepts no correction. Like we said before, it, they've completely rejected. They, they do not listen at all. They just tune it all out. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to God. Jerusalem's completely walked away from this relationship with God. They withdrew, and there's even mistrust between the people of God and God. It says her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves, and they leave nothing till morning. They, the leaders, even in Jerusalem, they don't leave and lead in a way that's well. They, they've become overindulgent in anything that brings pleasure. They've chased after all those other things rather than finding their sense of joy from God, they're chasing after everything else that might bring them a temporary joy. And that's the people that are leading them. It said even the prophets are fickle and treacherous men. The priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The leadership of this time has become reckless. They don't treasure God's Word. They don't, they don't hold it as holy they just don't care about God's Word. And so instead, they've perverted the things that are meant to be holy, and they've, they've ruined them. And then I notice this little verse here, verse 5. It's a, it's a direct contrast to what, what and who God is, despite what's happening even in Jerusalem. It says that the Lord within her, within this, God's people, He's righteous. He does no injustice, and every morning He shows forth His justice. Each dawn He does not fail. But the unjust, they know no shame. So God remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
And just because the times around us have changed and the people have changed and what's acceptable has changed, we need to understand that, that God does not change. The character of God remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. As I was reading and doing some research, it talked about the unjust knows no shame. And as I was reading this, it was talking about how even in our times that there's this lack of shame. That like even as we watch movies, we can watch things that that probably used to be like there there was a shock value when you would hear certain things talked about or see things happening on screen that we would have been like, I can't believe this is happening. Like we need to like turn turn away or like we'd be blushing because like this is there's shame to it. And it's gotten to the point that there there is no shameful thing. The unjust we've we've accepted what's called sin and, and it's right in front of us and we think it's okay. So there's no this sense of sorrow. There's there's no sorrow for what's wrong and what's sin. Instead, they've just embraced what is sinful. Psalm 106, 43 says it this way, that many times God tried to deliver them and they were rebellious in their purposes and they, they were brought low through their iniquity or through their sin. And this is exactly what Zephaniah is telling them, that they're, they're continuing in this pattern, but this justice is going to come the wrongs are going to be made right, and this destruction is, is pending over them. And so the verses continue in verse 6 there in Zephaniah. It says, I've cut off the nations. Their battlements are in ruins, and I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. And I said, surely you will fear me, and you will accept correction. And then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed you. But even with that, they were all the more eager to make all of their deeds corrupt. Even though this pending judgment is lingering over them, they have no cares for it. Verse 8 then has this scary little statement in there. It says, therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey for my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble the kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation and all of my burning anger for the fire of my jealousy on all the earth shall be consumed. God's giving this warning and it's harsh. This, this is a, a clear warning though for people to turn back in repentance and to turn toward God. But I notice in the middle of it that he keeps putting in these, these moments of like that he is eager for us to turn back. Even as rebellious and, and, and far off as these people have gone, he is eager and waiting and hoping that they'll return, that they'll repent and come back to him. That little phrase that I said there, therefore wait for me, I, I'm pretty sure all of us have heard this phrase before at some point. Um, I heard it in maybe different terms growing up, but it was, wait till your dad gets home. Right? And sometimes it's, it could be a good thing, like report card comes back and you're like, got really good grades, and it's like, man, can't wait till dad gets home. Like, I can't wait to show him this awesome thing, and then he can be proud and we can be excited together. And in the same moment, when it's something that I've done wrong, when that, there's that phrase, wait till your dad gets home. Like, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and you know, we'd have chores to do, and we'd have things, like, to do. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I got time. Dad gets home at 5, and I'd push it off a little bit. And it's like, you need to get that done. 
And there was definitely a tone change that happened somewhere in these warnings that you're like, that phrase, wait till your dad gets home, is like around the corner. That's next. And you knew if, if, if you don't get this done now, that phrase was going to be mentioned. And there was no turning back. There was no like pleading for forgiveness or whatever. It was like consequences are coming. Dad's coming home. You knew when that phrase was said, it was done. And there's like this respectful fear I think that we have when we go, I know that my dad loves me. But when I've done wrong, I know that my punishment's coming. And if I've not been doing wrong, there's joy when my dad comes home. But when this justification comes because I've been doing wrong, I should be a little fearful. My punishment's coming. So this is, this, the, this is the same for God. We, we hear this, these warnings of this judgment that's coming, this wrath that's going to be coming. But please hear this, though, because I know this can be a little bit of a downer. I'm sorry. But this is the message of the book. But I want you to understand that this justice that is coming for our rebellion against God, there's purpose for it. This burning indignation that he talks about, it has purpose and the purpose of God and his desire is not to destroy us. He doesn't just want to wipe us off the face of the earth because he's just done and over it. The purpose of this is to purify. It's to, to bring it back to a pure state without the rebellion, without the bad, without being marred by sin. God's desire is for us to be whole again, to be made right with him. And that's where there's this turning point happens in the book, and it happens just instantly. Between verses 8 and 9, we, we see this, this change from this, this pure rebellion and the judgment to come to verse 9 then turns to this restoration. That God talks about this work that he's going to do within us if we turn back to him. So verses 9 then continuing on says, For at that time I'm going to change the speech of the people to pure speech that all of them can call upon the name of the Lord and they can serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispensed ones, shall bring my offering. And on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you once rebelled against me. For then I'm going to remove them from your midst and your proudly exalted ones. You shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, and I'm going to leave in your midst a people humble and lowly that seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So at this time of the judgment, there, there, there's going to be this reckoning of accounts. Like, like a statement or a bill that comes due and it has to be paid. There's going to be this, this evening out of accounts. But yet for those who have turned to God, there's repentance. There's this moment, if you remember back to the Tower of Babel, that the people had become so unified and so great. And really, though, they had been thinking that we are so great on our own. We no, we no longer need God. We're going to build this tower. And once we've built this tower, what can stop us? Because we're so great on our own. So then God confused their languages and dispersed them out. The people went out from there. But here, there's like this reversal of that where he's saying, I'm going to actually bring them together again. Those that have been reconciled, those that have been repentant and come back to me, I'm going to bring them back in and to save them. So I think, I think there's this moment that we have to understand. Some guys, sometimes God takes us through some really hard moments, some really hard things in our own lives 
And I think it's for the purpose that we need to understand that we can't do it on our own. We were never meant to do it on our own. God's wanting us to come back to Him to have that relationship with Him again. So that's where in verse 9, He's calling His people back to Him to give them this pure speech to get them back to come and worship Him. So we're going to look down then at verses like 15 through 17. It says, The Lord's taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness, and he will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God takes away this judgment from us, but it wasn't without a price. It was actually a really big cost. But God knew that you were so worth it. Even as as ridiculous as our rebellion has been, he said, but you're my child. And he didn't want to leave you in that rebellious state. He sent his own son for you. For you to be reconciled back to God. So he paid the price for your sins. And then in verse 17, I I think this is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I love worship. I love to be able to sing and praise God. But look here, what it says is that God is so overjoyed with you that he's going to exult over you with loud singing. There is some great joy that God has when you turn back to him. When you're ready to be back in relationship with him, it says that he's going to sing over you. Like, I always think of worship as me going toward God. But God's actually singing praises because he's back reunited with you again. There's some great joy in this when we have this unity with him again. And all of this seems really sudden. How do we move from this rebellion to this restoration with God? What causes this change? And it's this small little bit we missed in chapter 2. But there's a little call to repentance. So we've been at this place of rebellion, going toward restoration, and it all hinges on this call to repentance. That God puts in the middle of this really harsh message, He's calling us to come back to Him. He says, gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decrees take effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord. All of you humble of the land, do his just commands. Seek righteousness and seek humility, and perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. These three verses are right in the middle of all this. A lot of harsh, angry wrath that's about to come, and he's calling us in to be his own. And I, I am definitely no hellfire brimstone preacher up here smashing the pulpit here. I did mention, do we have something more sturdy this week? But, but I think we have to understand that this judgment and this reckoning, there's going to be a statement due where there, there is a debt to be, to be paid according to our sins. And bad news, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. 
And so there is a debt to be paid. And I'd, I'd love to sit here and point fingers at the people of Jerusalem and say, look at these people. They're so rebellious. But as I read through this, I think I'm, I've fallen short just as much in my own life, and I'm just as marred by sin. But we're asked to do a few things here in, in verse 3, to seek the Lord. All of you humble of the land who do his just commands, seek righteousness and seek humility, and perhaps you may be hidden in the day of the anger of the Lord. Rest to seek the Lord, not to ignore like these people had, had been doing, completely not even listening. We're asked to actually seek him, to do your best to have relationship with God. Spend time in God's word and allow his word to go into you, because as you read God's word and you pray, you're understanding better of who God is. And when you allow his word into you, he understands you better. We're to do his just commands. We're to actually live out the things that we're reading about. And this is not just like fun hating rules. This is like giving you clear guidelines of what God's expectations are to keep you safe. And then it says to seek right living and, and to, to live in humility, to put others above yourself and to live out the things that God says in his word, to put his plan over my own. And then it says, perhaps in the day of the, the anger of the Lord, you'll be hidden. And this word hidden kind of maybe rubs me the wrong way, but yet we're, it's used the same way in Colossians chapter 3. This word hidden, it says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are of, the, of this earth. For you've died to your own life, and your life is hidden in Christ, in God. And when Christ, who is in your life, appears, or who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. This word hidden, it's not to like be tucked away to be hiding in shame. This, this word hidden means to be covered, to be sheltered, to be protected. And so when we come under God, he protects us. He watches over us. So that when this judgment comes and this account is to be, to be taken care of, to be settled, to be made even again, we're going to be restored with Christ through our repentance and our following after him, but not because of what we've done. It's because of what Christ has done. It's because of what Christ did on the cross, that Jesus died and took our place, took our pain, took our shame, paid our debt. That we can come to this place of restoration again and stand in front of God, protected and sheltered and hidden in Christ. So this book of Zephaniah, it's really hard, it's harsh, and it's not really a message we always want to hear. But we have to understand the rebellion that we've been living in. And I think we have to understand it so that we can understand what it looks like to be restored. We've got to understand how bad it was to be restored with Christ again. And we do that through our repentance and our rescue. And the only one that can do that is Jesus. He is the only way that we can be saved. So we have this terrible sin problem, and it's a deadly problem. That's this rebellion that we've lived in. But we have to understand that we don't have to stay there. There's a hero that comes in, a rescuer that we need to know, and he's, he's the only one that can save us. So hear this, and please don't turn away. Don't ignore these words, this warning, as harsh as it may seem. Don't ignore the warning. 
there is somebody here that loves you more than anything, that wants to save you from this terrible, terrible judgment that's coming, and He's calling you in, and His name is Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank You that even through a harsh warning, I see Your love through it. I see that You want to be with us. You want us to be restored again. God, help us to not just tune these words out, but that we would see Your love even in the midst of warnings, and help us to turn to Jesus, the only one that can save us. God, we love you, and we pray this all in Jesus' name.